we didn't prepare for an opening, did we, Murph? No, not really. We're kind of at that phase in our careers where we're coasting by on, like, charisma and habit. Yeah, yeah, I think we're phoning it in now. Um, what episode did you think we jumped the shark? If you ask me, it was probably Alice. Uh, I, I don't think Alice was that jumpy. You know, it was probably, like... Like the Doki Doki Literature Club episode, we tried to implement, like, gimmicks doing poetry. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's totally fair. And that was also when you near when you sold out. Same with uh, episode right after with Illusory Wall. We, we had a celebrity guest, and mm. you just talked about games that you got for free. Yeah, I know, I, think, I, I know. Think, I uh, should I should actually try getting more games for free. I keep forgetting that's a thing I can do now. <laughs> uh oh man it's it's all downhill from here uh hey everybody welcome to episode two season four of the daydreamcast i am bro and i am murph um murph you have been playing way more what you plans all my what you plans take too long now because uh informal announcement this is like in my head the jrpg era of my backlog playing so um I'm probably going to take way longer on what you're playing even now. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. Well, I'm just trying to compensate because I know my next couple, at the very least the next episode, is shaping up to just be me playing, like, AAA games. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, we'll get there when we get there. Murph, you played Anatomy. Tell me about it. Uh, yeah, so there's this uh, there's this indie horror movie that's sweeping the social medias uh, called Skinamarink. Uh which Skidamarinky do I love you is that in the movie or is I, that not a I don't know what you just referenced is that a thing is that what the title that's comes from That's a song I don't know if that's where the title comes from that's why I asked That is like a song people sing Oh like, okay like moms sing that is like Skidamarinky do I love you Oh yeah all right uh no I I just feel that I'm going to go watch it at some point uh you know, I've said before, I'm not really a horror guy, but uh, every now and again, like once a year, my brain tells me to seek out something that I know is going to mess me up. Uh, and it seems like Skinamarink is going to be that, even though like I hear it's very divisive. Anyway, I've heard from a lot of people that if you like Skinamarink, then you'd like this game, Anatomy, uh, which is an itch.io game. Did you like Anatomy, Murph? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, because this and seemingly Skinamarink and a few other like indie horror things we've gotten recently, both in games and movies and shows, are kind of based around the premise of what what if your house hated you for living in it? Um, is that is there a distinction between that and a haunted house or like even a poltergeist? Like, yes, because you know I mean? like... it's not it's not the like idea of like a singular spirit. It's more the spirit of the house itself has become malicious. It's like a Japanese thing, you know. So under this definition, is Disney Channel's movie Smart House part of this genre? Uh, yes. Yes, I would say that. And that one Treehouse of Horror that uh, stars Pierce Brosnan, I think? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. I'm taking notes. Continue. So Anatomy is a very straightforward. It's an inch.io game. You can get it for three bucks. It's from this dev uh, Kitty Horror Show, who I'm not too familiar with, but I hear they're like making waves in the indie game horror scene, much in the same way as like Puppet Combo a few years ago. Um, 
And the game is very straightforward. You are in a house with no exit, and you are walking around getting uh, tapes to play in a tape recorder that sort of talks about this urban explorer that uh, has this idea that the rooms of a house kind of coordinate to a human body. The kitchen is sort of like the heart because uh, things move through it or such and such. I forget all like the analogies. It's very well written. Um, but you sort of find all the tapes and then the game just ends and then you reload it and you play through it again. But now the house is a little, it's a little fucked up. Uh, like some rooms just have like stark red light or like hallways take a little longer to walk down than you expect. Uh um, it's all done in like pitch black. There's like barely any light in the game. And it's kind of hard to tell if like, this is just the mind playing tricks on you or there's something really there. But so often I would see like shapes in the corners of the screen. Like I would see like the outline of a person just ahead of me, but then I would get there and there's nothing. And it's like so um, subtly done. It's not like a jump scare thing. It's really just like that feeling of being in an, a place you only recognize by design, but not really like you've been in and your mind playing tricks on you. Um, I'm wondering, like, the influences of this game in this context. So, like, would you compare it to something like P.T., for instance, or maybe Eternal Darkness when it when you're talking about playing tricks on you or going through the same location with things differing? You know what I mean? Yeah, I would, like, I would say P.T. is probably a pretty heavy influence. Um, there's not really, like, a puzzle element. It really is just one of those games where you just kind of follow the objective, the objective being explore the house, find tapes, play them. And then the tapes really get kind of disturbing because on that second playthrough, it's kind of playing the same info, but then by, I think, like, the third tape, it starts playing, like, this really distorted, like, children's song about, like, gonna get you, gonna get you. Um, and then, like, another one's this really long, like, two-minute monologue from this woman talking about, like, tumors growing on her body and teeth were forming out of them and stuff. Um, I I was very spooked by this game. Um, and like I said, it's three bucks. I think it's a, a hell of a, like, a midnight play. Uh, it definitely, sounds, it definitely sounds preys cool. on some, like, fears that I know I have but couldn't really articulate, much in the same way that a lot of these other, like, your house hates you horrors seem to be doing. I don't really know a genre descriptor for it other than that. What do you think those elements are? Do you think it's like a hostile environment you're supposed to feel safe in or what? I think it's, yeah, that like feeling of your place of security isn't secure. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to have a, a lot of difficulty sleeping. Um, and I would wake up in the night and just kind of look around and see shapes and then I would, like, turn on the light and be like, oh, that's a coat bunched up in the corner. But I saw that as some, like, crouched goblin creature. I used to, like, not sleep with my back to the room, you know, or on uh. my stomach because I wanted, like, immediate awareness of all my surroundings in case I had to bolt up <laughs> in the night. Okay. All right. No, I mean, that makes sense. So anatomy taps into those feelings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, okay. $3. I think I will play this. This may be a game that shows up on our YouTube channel. I may play it for oh, that ho, ho. That sounds good. Yeah, plugging that now. Um, but you also played another game. Another game that starts with A. Uh, uh, we're doing alphabetical backlogs now. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I played a cane, which technically I have been playing since PAX West. I just 
for some reason have not talked about it. Um, uh, A cane is a very straightforward game. I guess what I would compare it to, having not played this game, but knowing the discourse around it, a slightly more involved vampire survivor. Um, What it is, you know that scene in Kill Bill Volume 1 when Lucy Liu is like, tear that bitch apart? And then the movie goes yeah. like black and white, and it's just like a a, a katana Her fighting fest. the crazy eighty eight. Yeah, um, yeah. it's that the game. It's basically you are in the final act of some like revenge cyberpunk noir story, playing a girl named Akane who has a katana and a pistol, and she set out to kill this yakuza boss. And you show up to his headquarters, and he sends like all the yakuza after you. And you just kind of fight waves and waves. And then every interval, there's like a boss fight. And that's basically what the game is. You have a basic attack. You have a gun you can pull out that like reloads on kills. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can unlock. Like if you, you die in one hit, enemies die in one hit. And then yeah. you start from the very beginning when you die. But if you achieve certain like um, achievements, like kill uh 50 enemies with your pistol in one life you unlock a new pistol that has some like different mechanics to it like a shotgun or a sniper rifle that pierces stuff like that sure um it's very pickup and playable i've only made it as far as the third boss but i think that it goes as high as five um but i've been playing it since september just kind of as like an end of the day cooldown game it's very pickup and playable i kind of compare it to like a very basic arcade game like pac-man it's just so straightforward all you need to think about is dodging dudes killing dudes shooting dudes that's it that's the extent of it this to me looks better than vampire survivors mm-hmm. so that looks uh, just from like first glance because it looks more involved um is there any like real progression or is it only options through the unlocks of weapons it's only those unlocks you can get like some sort of like so you can unlock new swords but there's only three swords including your starter one and the other two swords okay. just have like special moves like one is you throw it and the other one is you do like a spin move but and those are so quick to unlock there's a a few different types of guns but they don't i've only unlocked one because it said how you unlocked it i i haven't seen how you unlock the others and then you have different dashes you can unlock like either it's a like a straightforward dash or you just kind of sprint for a bit um and then you can get some trinkets that augment you slightly like increasing the amount of ammo you recover when you kill someone stuff like that so yeah theoretically you do you would like get to a point where you have like your perfect build and can just go and go and go um i haven't gotten to that point yet because like i said i only make it as far as like the third boss but you don't but like i guess i guess what i'm trying to hear is like the distinction here is is that the progression of this game is not based on a sort of progression path like a lot of no. this build stuff is just like you picking a preference for the game and the actual game pro- progression is just literally you getting better at it. Right? Yes, exactly. Like, you know, uh, even though I unlocked like these fancy new swords and things, their, their special moves are very situational and I don't find myself like relying on them. Like when I unlocked that whirlwind move, um, I wasn't thinking like, aha, this will make wave two easier. 
and stuff like that. Um, all your enemies are very basic. Every now and again, one of three special enemies will spawn, like a dude that can shoot you, a cyber samurai, and just like a big heavy dude that grabs you and beats you up. I, I like the game. It's, it's very addictive to just kind of sit down and play. I don't really know if I really have the wherewithal to really like set aside time to be like, all right, I'm going to make it as far as the final boss. You know? Yeah. But it's fun. And that's all that matters, isn't it? Uh-huh. At the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's also a low price. It's not, uh, it, it's four ninety nine. so, I mean, I think Oh, that's I got it on sale for, like, a buck thirty. <laughs> so. Oh, see, there you go. Bada bing, bada boom. I mean, you can't beat that. And it plays very well on Switch. Oh, I, I bet, or, like, Steam Deck or mm-hmm. anything like that. All right, I think it's time to talk about Devil May Cry. Yeah, you said you wanted to revive the hot take minute. The secret to the hot take minute is it's never dead. It's a sleep. <laughs> oh. It is a sleeping giant of the daydream cast. It's a sleeping volcano. The hot take volcano. <laughs> exactly. And then when it blows up, there's air horns. <laughs> Instead of me and Pavlos doing it, now we have actual edited uh, air horn effects. Um mm-hmm. I love Devil May Cry as a series. Have you played any Devil May Crys before? No. What is your experience with the character action genre? Uh, I, as in like I, Kingdom I get, Hearts. Yes, too. Kingdom Hearts. Um, I've played uh, all three. I uh, every Kingdom Hearts three times. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I've never played a Bayonetta. I didn't play Ninja uh, uh, God of War classics. Uh, I I count God of War classic. Yeah, I never played sure. Heavenly Sword. I never played a G- Ninja oh, Gaiden. Uh, I never played that PS2 Nightmare Before Christmas game where Jack Skellington has a booger. Future Daydream Cast episode. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, I'm sure there's some I'm forgetting. I love doing air combos. I love juggling people. Yeah, of course. It's it's a thing. Um, Devil May Cry is an amazing series. Um, I think that each title offers its own thing. I think probably... I think most definitely the worst one is Devil May Cry 2. Because the genre was still very young and they didn't necessarily know what made it special yet. Mm. So there was a lot of uh, changed elements in it that feel bad. Like for instance, the guns um, have a higher priority in Devil May Cry 2. Um, Most of the time they're meant to extend combos or like keep enemies in the air, for instance. But in that game, it is like one of the go-to things because it just does so much damage. Right. And it's very responsive. So like shit like that, they, they just didn't think through. Um, otherwise, everything else is like a high recommend, you know, big thumbs up. Um, this being said, I think now, now that the dust has settled and Devil May Cry 5 has been out for years and we've. The franchise has resurged from the ashes of DMC. Yes, the franchise. Exactly. Um, I think. Devil May Cry 4 is the second worst. And I'm including the reboot. I'm including fucking the fucking, uh, what's that developer's name? Ninja Theory. I'm including Ninja Theory in uh, this ranking. I legit think Devil May Cry 4 is a game that I will probably never want to play again. Mm. And that sounds very mean, but it's true. Well, is there... Because that was the one right before the reboot. So do you think there's like 
I don't know, is Devil May Cry 4 to blame for that? Definitely part of it. Yeah. Okay. So like it, to, to get a glimpse into like production history and stuff, um, the, the franchise has always been ups and downs. So like one by Kamiya was like a big hit or whatever. And like people loved it, founded, founded a lot of principles of the character action genre, yada, yada, yada. I just talked about two um, and three came along and was like a prequel and like went back to like the priorities of like speed, et cetera, et cetera. And then when four came along, four was meant to sort of be like a next gen title and it pushed a lot. However, you can tell playing the game that the game is very rushed and I think it did sell well, but it's one of those that it didn't sell well in the eyes of big wigs. Does this make sense? Yeah. I've never um, really heard about devil may cry four. Um, well, I, I used to have a military a buddy who was stationed in Okinawa, so he never got, like, the E3 conferences, so I'd relay everything to him by text. And when the DMC5 yeah. trailer premiered, um, I was like, oh, it looks like it's a, a sequel to DMC. Dante has a robot arm now. Because I didn't know who the oh character ne Nero was. <laughs> okay, well, well, we could get to that. Because, like, okay, so the thing is, is, like, number one, yeah, Devil May Cry 4 stars Nero. Um, he had a, he had a devil arm in that one. Not a devil trigger. Yeah, pretty much not a devil trigger. He has like another trigger later on when he gets Yamato that's similar to one, mm -hmm. but no, he did not have a devil trigger in four. However, what happens is, is halfway spoiler alert for devil may cry four. Um, a very old game at this point, over 10 years old. So fuck you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, halfway through the campaign, you switch to Dante. Um, and Dante has his like Devil May Cry 3 moveset and he can switch um, styles on the fly instead of in between missions, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So here's the thing. And especially since after four, there was a long stretch of time. The thing I want to say here is, is I think Devil May Cry 4 is a very solid foundational combat game. So for a lot of people, it was a game to play and love for a long time um the systems are good it feels good etc etc but that back half as dante is literally i i don't want to give a number to it but it's mostly backtracking through the first 10 levels so mm. it's literally like a mirror you know what i mean yeah where you're going where you're going re you're revisiting old areas backwards and um you can tell that the game is it's it's a disservice to say half finished, but it's true. Like they they cut out a lot, and you can tell that the game was compromised in that way. And like the special editions tried to patch it up with adding, you know, Trish and Lady, which are fine. And they added Virgil, who is you know the same as he usually is. They added like two mechanics to him, and it's a solid game. However, I think now. Devil May Cry 5 supersedes it. It is it has that foundation aspect, but then has the complete game content alongside it. So for instance, take Nero. The thing about Nero is that he has one sword. He has the Red Queen. And like you can do things with it, like rev it up like a motorcycle for com combo opportunities. And he had a he had a devil arm to like grab people. And, you know, to, to like grapple them or reach them or et cetera, et cetera. And then that was it. 
so his his moveset was really limited in four. It's fun, but it's limited. And then Devil May Cry 5 got rid of the devil arm and gave you multiple different arms to it. So that way, Nero is a much more engaging character. And also, I guess, minor spoiler for Devil May Cry 5, um, Nero eventually gets a devil trigger of his own. Um, so there is that aspect to it. And then in terms of style and content, each level is very different and varied. You play as different characters each level, but each level does not feel, you know, like a retread. Um, v is an interesting character on his own. Uh, Virgil plays differently, and I appreciate that in this one. He still has uh, Devil May Cry 3 elements to him, but he plays generally different. And um, I guess the other thing is, is like, style there's some things i like about devil may cry 4's anime style i think it's especially nice in that that's the one game where you're fighting enemies that look like angels so because like you're fighting basically a church in that game and the okay. church worships like the church worships a demon named sparta yada 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 bullshit but like you're fighting angels in that game and um in in this one in this one it has less of an anime aspect anime was always like a really big aspect of the devil may cry series but um five just like just completely blows it out of the water because i think it was informed by the reboot uh the reboots artistic stylings the personality of it but then it maintains the humor and tone and like the pace of the anime devil may cries so then you're like really appreciating it like dante's this goofy guy and they fucking made the anime canon and it's just a wild ride. But then they use like the RE engines, realistic graphics to sort of ground everything in a really nice way. And I don't know, just, I love five. I like the DMC reboot. Like I think the DMC reboot also adds things to the table that four just doesn't have. Like I played through four this time around and I was like, man, anything I could get out of this, I could get elsewhere. Yeah. And I think because of that four is just, it's down. Is down in the dumps for me now. It's over. This this may be a labored comparison, but it's literally the only thing my brain is bringing forth as like a comparison. It, it sounds like this is like the Batman Arkham Origins of the franchise, where there's little you can get from it that you can't get from the sequel Arkham Knight and done better, or the first game Arkham, not the first game, the previous game Arkham City that has more content. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's in a it's in a tough place, and you know the thing is, is like on release and after release, it was an important title because for Devil May Cry Four, like there wasn't a game that was like quote unquote Devil May Cry in a realistic sense for years, and I mean years. So like for a lot of people, this was a definitive experience, but time sort of changes that. Is this the one that has the line? Um... I should have been the one to fill your dark soul with light. No, that's Devil May Cry 1. That is when Trish dies in Devil May Cry 1. Spoiler alert for oh, Devil May Cry. Oh, okay. I thought that was much later based on no. my understanding. Okay. So have you have you only been playing Devil May Cry 4 or are you doing a Murph and playing through them? I mean, I've already played them all. Um I uh, here's what happened was is I re-downloaded them 
And I specifically went to four because that's the one I've played the least. Mm. Other than two, but like, again, we're not talking about two dog. <laughs> uh, so it was the one I was like, you know what? Let's let's see what's going on here again. And as I was playing, I was just like, man, this. And, it, you know, the other thing is, is like it came out on the 360 era. And the 360 era for Capcom in terms of environments and stuff started to feel a little generic or something. Like it yeah. gives me a big Resident Evil 5 village vibe. Like, you know, like the Africa settlements and stuff? Yeah. Like, it gives me a lot of those Xbox 360 vibes. And I don't particularly like that art design for the environments and stuff. I think it gives me. I think for a lot of franchises, we're going to look back on the PS3, Xbox 360 era and see a lot of those entries as kind of like weird growing pains for a lot of yeah. franchises. Because, you know, it happened with this, like you said, Resident Evil. Um, just sort of a lot of franchises trying to figure themselves out in a environment that was getting predominantly dominated by realistic military shooters. Yeah, yeah, it, it was it was a tough market, and like the industry was changing in so many ways, like and the scale of like things were just like growing tremendously. So like I think a lot of this game was ambitious, but it's just one of those things where it's like they. I, I don't know, man. It's just, it's just fucked. I don't, and, uh, and to be clear, I want to be clear here. This is probably a hot take. This is why it was, the, that's why there's a volcano about to kill us, Murph. Mm. Because I think there are people that still love four, like a lot. Um, but just playing it, I just saw it. And then like, I played Devil May Cry 5 special edition after. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is fucking amazing. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. This is so good. Did I tell you I attended the midnight launch party for Devil May Cry 5 at the PAX before last I attended? Why? I It was something to do. It was like, oh, there's a party going on. And I'm like, cool. We get to the door and they charge us $50 for entry. And then f food's free inside, but it's just like crustinis and stuff. And drinks are like $12. <laughs> I, oh I didn't have a fantastic time. I met the creator. He, like, came up and patted me on the shoulder, like, as I was talking with my friends, just sort of inserting himself. We didn't have much to say to one another, but it happened. That's what it's all about. That's the networking of the Daydream cast, y'all. I know. I should call him out. Call him up. See if he remembers me. We'll have him guest star. <laughs> um, you played a game called Teardown, didn't you, Murph? Yeah, this was one of those uh, hot indie titles of 2022. Um, so the Teardown is, is one of those games that are kind of like they built an engine that does something really cool, and then they weren't really certain how to build a game around it. Um, it's a it's a voxel art style with fully destructible environments, and the art like the the graphics look really cool. Like like it's kind of like one of those Minecraft with all the Nvidia shaders kind of feel to it. Um, and everything is truly fully destructible. It's not like one of those red alert situations where it's like, eh, most things are destructible, but you can't destroy important things. Um, and you have a variety of tools, like a sledgehammer, a shotgun, a blowtorch, and you go on heists, effectively. You are a, a teardown construction company that gets embroiled in these competing, like, uh, crime families uh, doing hit jobs on one another so you'll get called up and be like i need you to break into this guy's house and steal all this precious art or uh 
drive his luxury cars into the ocean or steal this safe, yada, yada. Um, the issue is, is that very quickly, all of these scenarios become races. Uh, the idea is that you like drop in a map. There's multiple maps. A lot of them get recycled a lot. And then you'll have different objectives spread across that. So like in that one, I mentioned like stealing art, there's like various art pieces and you need to do at least three and they're like in far corners from each other. Um, the issue is, is that very quickly these objectives get hooked up to alarm systems. So the minute you take one, a, a 60 second timer starts. So you got to get the others, then get to your escape vehicle. So the idea is that you use this destructible environment to like set up routes for yourself. Um, it's just, I'm just not having that as great a time with it as I wanted, or at least I thought I would. Um, because it becomes a lot of, like, you're in the process, you've got, like, two of three things stolen, and then you, like, hit a snag, you have to, like, quick load, restart, and, like, it, it, like, the act of problem solving doesn't feel fun in this, because a lot of it is left to chance because of the, A, the wonky vehicle controls, there's a lot of vehicle-dependent missions, and the vehicle controls are not ideal, and B, the destruction just isn't that tactical it's not it's destructible but it's not realistic like you can destroy like all the supports for a house um save one and because that one is still standing the house like is still upright it won't fall over you know there's no like gravity to anything and that's what kind of creates an issue because i had like one thought where i would tactically destroy this lighthouse so that it would tip over a certain way and I destroyed all the wall on one particular side. And I'm like, why isn't it tipping? Why isn't it tipping? And I had to go around the backside and like destroy it all the way around. And then it just kind of plonked like directly down and didn't tip at all. <laughs> and that was very disappointing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'll still play it to try and like unlock all the tools. Um, what has been a boon is this game is very moddable. In fact, that's kind of what it sells on these days, is that there's a huge modding community around it. Kind of, seemingly from my perspective, only setting up, like, environments just to destroy things. But you can get some pretty nifty tools, like the portal gun, which makes all of those uh, races a lot more, like, easy to navigate. It, you know, you're objectively cheating, but in my idea, like, the game kind of cheated first. Um, or you can get the Metal Gear Revengeance Katana and just slice things in half, and that's fun. So, so this is basically a physics sandbox with different, you know, objectives or whatever. Um, it seems like your objection is to the actual physics part. Well, because it, right? it doesn't have physics. It just has destruction. I think those are two components that need to be, that need to work in tandem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because, yeah. like I said, like another example... Um, I was trying to, like, really set up this route to try and get... Because there's always optional objectives in every mission. And I was trying to, like, yeah. set up this one. There's a beach house that's on, like, stilts. And I was like, oh, I could get, like... I could blow out the stilts on the left side so the house will, like, lean towards the ground. And that puts the thing I need to grab at ground level. 
Um, but I blew out all the stilts on the left side, but there were still two on the right side that were seemingly holding the whole structure up. And then I blew those out, and it's like it's still standing, and I'm like, what What could it be? Oh, it's the little staircase down to the ground level is keeping the whole structure up now. And, like, I don't know, like... I'm sure the engine itself was difficult to put together and adding, like, realistic crumbling physics to everything would, like, toast a lot of computers. But it's, like, that sort of stuff takes me out of the experience. It feels like I can't problem solve when I can't predict how the engine is going to react to my destruction, you know? Yeah. But, uh, you know, c'est la vie. Oh, well. Um, how much is this game? I think I got it on sale. I think it sells for $30. I got it for 25 Would you recommend it for 25 I think I would wait for a deeper cut. Like I said, it came out last year, so it's probably going to take a while for it to be even like 50% off. At that point, you know, by the time it's that cheap, there's probably going to be a lot more mods. And they're also adding like free content, free levels all the time. Yeah. Um, by that point, it's probably a more worthwhile experience. It just kind of depends on what you want out of a game that has quote unquote like fully destructible environments. Yeah. All right. Are we? Is it time for the variety minute? Yeah. So let's let's talk about about ending things. This week's Variety Minute is true endings. Now, I want to be, I, I was like actually looking into this. Do you want to talk about alternate endings or just literally quote unquote true endings? I was thinking more true endings, but more in a way where we try to define what that means. Because, you know, as far as like, the gamer sphere is concerned a true ending is something highly specific you know um because a lot of games have multiple endings but there seems to be this idea that the ending you work hardest for is the true ending well i think a lot of it and like we'll get into it with the game of the week a lot of it is content whether or not you're doing these side quests, mm -hmm. whether or not you're checking these boxes. And then once you check these boxes, then it's like, oh yeah, you've addressed all these things. Now there's an entirely different resolution here. Like in contrast to like Silent Hill 4 or Silent Hill 2, where like each ending is like more tailored to player engagement. There's literally some that are like, well, you barely played this game, but you did just enough. Versus yeah. somewhere it's like, you got these side quests, you collected the items, and bada bing, bada boom, you've unlocked the content. I think a really clear example I always go to is Symphony of the Night, which is like, if you, if the final boss is Richter, you didn't play the game enough. Mm -hmm. The game tries to make that very clear. It's yeah. like, hey, like, there's a lot more game left. You need to do this. If you don't, this is all you're getting. 
and that's why there's an inverted castle and that's why there's like an entire other chunk to it is it's like oh it's supposed to be very clear like there's more here there's more going on you know yeah like sometimes a true ending is simply more of an ending i think about something like mass effect 3 which you know the ending controversy aside one of the like the components of that ending is depending on how much galactic readiness you had for the final mission if you hit a certain threshold, the ending would include like a little five second clip of Shepard in the rubble taking a breath. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's the true ending. He survived. <laughs> but it, it's not really indicative of any sort of like narrative. I think like the best example of a true ending is Arkham Knight, where, you know, once you beat the Scarecrow and everything, the game isn't done. You don't hit like credits or anything. You need to resolve all the issues in the city before Batman, like, puts in the call that he's done for good. And part of that, you know, part of doing that in Arkham Knight means doing, like, all 500 Riddler challenges, which is a pain. Um, yeah. But, you know, it is, like, showing, like, no, this is the end of the game. You have done everything. There is no more content. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily like this because I'm not a completionist. Yeah. Um, I, I think... I think there's more tasteful ways to do true endings. I think Bloodborne is really good for this because I think Bloodborne is tasteful in how it engages endings. The three endings are basically how you want to engage. You can be like, I don't want to beat, I don't want to play any bosses. Let me just fucking go for the, go for the lazy Susan ending. And then there's an ending for German. And then there's like an actual ending, which requires you to, you don't have to fight every boss. You don't even have to get every item. You just have to get the right items and know what to do with them. And then you fight the real boss. You know what I mean? And I think that's much more tasteful. Yeah. To you, does a true ending constitute a canonical ending? Especially in series with like sequels. Since it has to, when you make a sequel, you have to commit to an ending. I don't like alternate endings that ha that like stick to canon like for instance that's one of the reasons why i like dark souls so like in dark souls i'm not going to talk lore the endings are all canon like in dark souls one the two endings there are they're like they could ambiguously happen you know what i mean mm -hmm. so in this sense there is no removal of agency from player i like stuff like that i think that's very important um and like sometimes you'll get something like fallout for instance where you know you go through these things and it's much more similar to like king's quest like this this king's quest we're going to talk about later has variations so yeah. like for for fallout a lot of times it's like you didn't do this side quest so this character got fucked over but you did this side quest so the, this character's okay and then sometimes you'll see that reflected in a sequel in, in, in the sequels there, it doesn't necessarily give you the big canon, oh, this is what happened. But, like, you'll see, oh, clearly in the last game he did that side quest. And I think that's tasteful, and I think that's fine. Yeah, like, uh, something, going back to Mass Effect again, with the, um, the difference between, well, the jump between Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 2. Um, I started with Mass Effect 2. Um, actually, it was years later until I actually played Mass Effect 1. <laughs> but um, if you just start with, in Mass Effect 2 with, like, no previous save to import, no, no choices, the game kind of plonks you into what Bioware calls their canon world state, 
And weirdly, it's a world state where they seem to have chosen, like, all of the renegade choices that, like, statistically players did not pick. So it's like a world where you killed the Rachni Queen, where the Galactic Council died, yada yada. It's kind of like the most negative world state you could have. And it wasn't until I finally was able to play Mass Effect 1 and port that to Mass Effect 2 that I got to see that different world state and be like, wow, you know, this is so different from the canon I'm used to. People like humans now. <laughs> I think I think there's some ones to mention. Like, here's another thing I like about some true endings. Um, uh, an example here would be uh, probably like a near Automata or um actually for me it's like cave story but near automata or any of the near games those games are games that are meant to be played multiple times into like new game pluses mm -hmm. where each ending is built on top of yeah, each other it's so like that yes and that that true final ending is is meant for the diehards which sort of encapsulates the full experience of mastery that's i think appropriate and fine I, I i don't think at that point it's worried about canon like i don't think that's like the idea there yeah um and i think for me cave story is also a scenario where it's not necessarily like they build on each other iteratively but it's more like you were never going to get the true ending on your first playthrough on your yeah. first playthrough there's too many subtle differences that you don't know about. And it's only on later playthroughs. You're like, wait one second, maybe I could do this. And if you can do that, you change something and you go, Oh, wait one second. And then it, and then the true ending opens up that way. And I think that's appropriate too. Another iterative uh, one would be uh, undertale where yeah. it's informed by prior playthroughs. I think undertale is really smart about endings. Yeah. Cause undertale does that thing where, spoilers i guess um when you get to i think most players got the neutral ending their first time around because they didn't realize how much like their level and exp uh were actually affecting like the narrative and then yeah. me i got that neutral ending and then went back and did the full pacifist ending and to me like you know I, I've never done the genocide run. I don't want to because of how that game structures its ending and narrative around them. Um, yeah. I think, like, a game... How how do you feel about the idea that the true ending is, like, the best outcome ending? I don't necessarily think that's the... You know, it, I, I don't think it goes by true when we talk about this, but, like, I think that's one of the things I liked about uh, Blood Omen legacy of mm. kane which was was the negative ending where kane became a bad guy is the canon ending i don't necessarily need the player to feel good yeah. you know what i mean um i i think it's sometimes better for the character or the story to take the other turn and i think that's appropriate too sometimes um i can't think of a scenario off the top where the canon ending is um bad for the player um but, yeah. I think about something like uh, Resident Evil 1 and how mm. that final lab section can play out differently. Um, particularly if you're playing as, like... Actually, no, both of them. Because you can have scenarios where, like, you're playing as Chris and Rebecca died earlier. Or you're not able to save um, Jill. And, like, going into, like, you know, the final... FMV cinematic of your character in the escape chopper 
and what they're looking at. Are they looking at the two people they saved, the other two stars members? Or are they there by themselves and like Chris lights one up? You know, in that context, in that context, I think you would like uh, how they deal with Silent Hill one. So spoiler alert for Silent Hill one, Cheryl, you saw the movie where I'm now advertising that we did. We're doing a movie podcast uh-huh, for uh-huh. video games. But in, in the original Silent Hill one game, there is a mo- not Cheryl. Who's the fucking cop? Sybil. Cheryl is the girl. Sybil. Thank you so much. Um, in the game, you can save Sybil through like a weird item that you find on the ground or Sybil can die. And it doesn't, the, the later game Silent Hill three, which deals directly with the events of Silent Hill one never mentions Sybil. It's very clear that Harry survived and brought the baby, but the, the fate of Sybil is unclear. So it may not necessarily be a happy ending. That was candid. And I think that's the scenario that, yeah, I think is realistic. Isn't that something that, um, what, Deus Ex The Fall? Or no, Invisible War? Which one's the, like, the first sequel? Invisible War was the first sequel. I didn't play it. Okay, but doesn't it do a thing where all three of the endings to the first game are canon at the same time? That sounds cool. If that's, I don't, I don't know deus ex sequel lore i didn't even play like human revolution that much which is a prequel but i haven't either um i was just kind of like doing research on like true endings um i think like pro i'm pro alternate endings being all canon thumbs up (laughs) so did something right there i think with like a true ending a trap a lot of developers get into is they kind of end up doing the clue ending and i mean clue the movie where, well, I guess in its original run, it didn't do this, but in all airings and DVD releases since, it does the thing where it shows, like, the ending, and then the text pops up that, like, that's one way it could have played out, but it also could have played out like this. And then it does that, like, three more times, and then finally it says, but here's how it really happened. And it's just a different ending, you know? It's not like anything's really revealed, or it, like finalizes some sort of character arc or narrative theme it's just different you know um sometimes like a true ending requires like did you play inside no okay um inside has if you just like follow the path inside has an ending um but there's like a secret ending where if you like do some tricky platforming and you go into this room you find, like, I think it's just, like, a chair and a plug in the wall. And if you go over and unplug that plug, your main character falls over dead. Mm. And then you get Um, an achievement that says, like, true ending achieved. That reminds me of, uh, spoiler alert, I won't spoil The Witness, Braid, I'll I'll talk about Braid here. Uh, Braid has something very similar, um, where you have to get stars, and and if you well technically there's two endings aside from the main ending one ending is minor spoilers for braid because i'm talking about the weird stuff you're meant to get a princess at the very end of the game that you're not supposed to get to if you are really good at platforming and puzzle solving you can get the princess and then she like blows up and then like the game just cuts to credits isn't it an analogy for the atomic bomb or something? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, yes. 
all of that. Um, there's that one, and then like it's the same ending, but um, you can get stars in the game, and the stars are all hidden. There's one where you have to like wait seven minutes for like a platform to move slowly to you you get on it and then you wait like another seven minutes to bring it back and then you can get like an invisible star if you get like seven of those you can easily get to the princess and then she becomes like the atomic bomb but i think in those scenarios what i don't like about these quote-unquote true endings is it sort of makes subtext explicit or it makes like for braid a lot of the game is about regretting things you've done so i think yeah the atomic bomb would be one of the biggest regrets anyone would ever do <laughs> if you made the atomic bomb you should fucking regret it <laughs> yes but 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 if you make the game like oh the true ending is the atomic bomb and by the way the normal ending has like quotes from the fucking oppenheimer shit uh-huh like it's got the i am become death shit so like there was nuclear subtext so i don't like it when the subtext becomes text does this make sense yeah it kind of goes into that thing where we said like sometimes a true ending is just like more of an ending or it just removes ambiguity yeah like how much i guess Overall, are you pro the idea of a true ending, like making the player jump through some extra hoops in order to get like more closure? Or does that seem like restrictive is not the right word, but like forcing the player to do a like a grind in order to have like proper closure? Are you against I... that idea? No, no. I mean, it goes into like the side quest thing. And I think mm -hmm. King's Quest 6 or Batman Arkham Knight are good examples of unresolved narratives. The true ending is just resolving the narratives. Yeah. And that I think is appropriate and fine. I think it goes into like the hidden endings or like, we, you know what I mean? It's the weird shit that I'm like, you know, this doesn't have to be canon if we don't want it to be. There's other stuff like Chrono Trigger. Uh, a lot of JPGs have like alternative endings as well. Just wanted to say that before. Yeah. Uh, for the record, I want to say, to me, the real ending of Bloodborne is the simplest one. You just wake up. It was all a dream. That's always been my interpretation. Okay. There you go. I'm not going to argue with you here. I don't want to waste 20 minutes of my life. <laughs> all right. Are, are, we, are we ready for the game of the week? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's get into it. Let's Let's go to the Emerald Isles. The Green Isles. Damn it.
Our game of the week this week is King's Quest VI, Air Today, Gone Tomorrow. King's Quest VI is a 2D graphic adventure game with a point-and-click interface. You know, we're talking look, walk, talk, use actions uh, with an item inventory. Um, it follows immediately from King's Quest V. Uh, basically, uh, at the end of King's Quest V, Prince Alexander met uh, Princess Casima this this game he's like oh my god she's fucking beautiful i miss her you know she's at her kingdom the green isles um and i got i gotta fucking i gotta see her i'm in love and everyone's like you're fucking this is wild dude you met her for like 10 minutes man what what, what are you doing here <laughs> um anyways uh he, he's got he's got to fucking go so he brings on a ship and it ends, he ends up stranded on the islands. And uh, there he learns that uh, Prince Ka Princess Kasima is to be wed to the vizier, Abdul Al-Hazred. And uh, the king and queen are dead. The other islands that make up the Green Islands are consisting of different factions. And they hate each other for specific reasons. Um, and the way to travel the islands, the fairy, is mysteriously out of commission. Uh, your job is to unravel the mysteries of the vizier and the Emerald Isles and, uh, and you know, rescue Casima from certain evil. Um, the game has a lot of variants for endings depending on what side quests and solutions you pursue, such as taking control of the genie instead of killing the genie or bringing back Casima's parents back from the dead. Uh, either way, Murph, what did you think of this game? I love King's Quest VI. Uh, DD Cast it, Season 4 is currently two for two on games Murph just loves the hell out of. Um, I think this is the best King's Quest game. I would hesitate to say it's the best Sierra game because I, I haven't played any of the Quest for Glory games and I've always wanted to, so I'm just like, but of the Sierra games I've played, I think this is like the best one. What do you think makes the distinction? I think it's the act of, like, presentation. This is so refined. They're, they're specific, like, adventure game. Um, like, how you play, like, making it... You know, you go back to, like, King's Quest 1 through 4. They're still using that, like, parsing engine where you have to, like, type go north and things like that to choose direction. Here, it's just simple point and click. You click a spot, Alexander walks there. You, like pull up the eye icon, you click on something, the narrator will describe what you're looking at and things like that. Yeah. So it's so straightforward. So you don't have to worry about like any control issue. Um, mm -hmm. It also just is like the puzzles are far less bullshit than they ever have been. And there's a lot less like action set pieces that are highly dependent on like input. There's like only 
one area, specifically, like, the entrance to the Land of the Dead, where just, like, an NPC can walk up to you, touch you, and kill you if you're not paying attention. Um, but, like, a lot for me, in my opinion, a lot of the uh, puzzles in this game are... It's sort of like gates to like make sure that you have you collected the right items before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's just like there's like gates that like basically check, hey, do you have everything? And even then, the game is sometimes forgiving. Like for instance, when you go up to the when you're about to be thrown into the dungeon by the winged people, um, if you don't have everything initially, they'll let you go one time. There's yeah. a lot. There's like sometimes, or like if you're caught in the castle, um, what's his name? Jalo will let you out one time. Jalo will let you out one time, and he's like, "Hey, after this, you're you're fucked. Be careful, dude." So like the game is forgiving, and even then, the death scenes they're they're funny and enjoyable. Obviously, you should save often and you know, save separately a lot of times. Um, and you may be held back quite a bit by certain things. Like for instance, the, uh, inventory swapping of the pawn shop. Sometimes you may have the wrong item at the wrong time, but again, um, we think it's fine. I think, I think the solutions are pretty straightforward and don't require heavy abstract thinking. It's very, it's very difficult to soft lock yourself in this one which is, like, yeah. a huge improvement. The only way you can really get soft-locked is if you uh, go back to the Winged Ones without all the items you'll need to survive the Labyrinth. Um, yeah. Like, you go back even one game prior, King's Quest V. King's Quest V has this bit where you, like, walk into town and you see a cat chase a mouse. And mm-hmm. if you don't do anything, the cat eats the mouse... Later, you're going to be, like, tied up and imprisoned in this basement. The mouse is supposed to, like, come and rescue you by chewing through the ropes. But if you didn't rescue the mouse by, like, in that specific, like... And it's very quick when it happens. You're supposed to pull out a boot and throw it at the cat. And that will save the mouse. And then the mouse will rescue you later. But the difference between, like, rescuing the mouse and the mouse rescuing you is, like... I'm going to say, like, a good... 10 minutes of gameplay you can forget if that even happened and wonder why you can't progress and to go back to that ending thing like there's different ways like there's there's different ways to get into the castle for instance Mm -hmm. and there's different ways to uh again like you could kill the genie or you could uh have jalo take the genie by swapping the uh lamps so like there's different you won't be soft locked in that way what will just happen is you'll have a shittier ending like that's that's the thing and that's fine yeah you'll you'll still get the girl at the end but you may not like restore peace to the realm you may not revive her parents you may not be friends with jalo you may not be friends with the genie etc etc and this kind of gets back to our discussion about true endings it's just more of an ending and it's more of a happier one could you could be dismal where it's like hey everybody's still at war you're fucking like 19 years old (laughs) and uh, you've inherited a shit kingdom yeah so uh be ready bud yeah yeah how do you feel about like the theming of the different islands because i think that's like what also tickles me about this game is that the theming to every island is so very different um i like it i I like that the geography of it uh feels good um i I think that the one thing about this game is is i think sometimes it has i don't want to say trouble because i ended up loving the writing um but 
it it juggles between humor and like serious moments sometimes mm-hmm. in like weird ways. I think the but just to talk about the island specifically, I like the personalities of the different things. Like I like the gnomes with the with the different senses. Yeah, that's a the fun big puzzle. ears or the big nose. I like the chess pieces, the the queens arguing with each other. Just it's all the stuff like that that feels uh, fresh and inviting. And then like as factions, it all makes sense why they don't like each other because the fucking vizier fucking took stuff and then blamed other islands. So then you've got like a little civil war brewing and the the side quests and the true ending feel fulfilling because you've interacted with the world more you know what i mean yeah and like it even gives you that if you do the quick ending which i have done like once before where you disguise yourself as a woman and sneak into the castle um if you do that ending like at the end it will pop up a little text box being like oh man you got like an ending but you could have like gone to the realm of the dead and don't you want to do that? Doesn't that sound cool? That is a cool thing. But, like, I I think the, the dead thing is, like, one of those scenarios where it's very clear. Like, there's, a there's like, a weird tone clash of, like, you could play fucking xylophones on the bones and have <laughs> dancing segments. But then you're fucking talking to the fucking Lord of the Dead who's, like, fucking metal. Yeah. And then you have to, like, hold a mirror to his face while he cries about, like you know the reality of his you know shit like there there's like it's well written but you're jumping like it's very close to whiplash i think it really captures a tone of an actual like tabletop rpg like that's fair if, if you can imagine like just like a very dedicated DM being like, and here's the pawn shop owner and he can talk to you and has like different little gadgets you can trade out um and things like that that kind of like helps me with the tone whiplash i think it helps for like the sort of more moon logic puzzles that there's literally just like the isle of wonders which works on wonderland logic like here's the bookworm and the bump on the log and the stick in the mud um you know yeah and thankfully even then like the wonderland logic isn't bad like the the bookworm like the solution to his puzzle with the dangling participle shit isn't complicated. It it makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't even have to like know what the term dangling participle means. You can just logic out. Well, I found this weird thing. Maybe it goes on the Island of weirdness. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, like I, I think it's all, it's all good. And you're right about the presentation. I love the portraits mm. where they sort of animate the lips talking. Um, I played the DOS version. I noticed that the portraits are different depending on the version, but I like the DOS version. I think it looks great. Um, yeah. And and I love the voices. Oh, the yeah. voices are great. Oh, yeah. We've got uh, just some, like, just a rundown, some different, like, names we got. As Alexander, we've got Robbie Benson, who I think that same year, 93? Yeah. No, no. 95. He would be the Beast in Be- Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Um, I wouldn't know it to uh, hear his voice in this. Uh, it's also very funny that this game involves a Beauty and the Beast story. But then you also got, like, Tony J as, like, the Gates to Death and uh, Captain of the God, Saladin. Tony J. The dogs. I love the guard You love dogs. the guard dogs. Oh, my God. I knew I knew I was gonna love this game when I saw the guard dogs. I was like, "This is it. Yeah. This is good." Yeah, 
Uh, Tony J would also be he, Judge Claude Frodo, Frollo in Disney, uh, another Hunchbacks of Notre Dame and other like Disney cartoons things. Um, the narrator is also bringing um, uh, to, damn it, where did his name go? Oh, Bill Ratner, who has done a ton of video game voices. What I recognize him first and foremost is he's Chancellor Udina from Mass Effect. But if you want, like, he's a, like, a ton of, like, major characters in most of the Grand Theft Autos. Um, you know, it's a very solid voice cast, and they're very good at reading exposition, which is, you know, admittedly a good chunk of this game. Yeah, a lot of this game is about setting, and I think that is one of the bigger strengths to, like, Roberta Williams and, like, the, the King's Quest series is, like, the setting and uh, set pieces rather than full-on characterizations. Um, like, for instance, this game, I don't necessarily feel involved in Prince Alexander's characterization period. It's more that I feel Alexander through my own actions in the world. And then the world itself is interesting and developed. And I didn't read like the guidebook, but the guidebook and like those pages have extensive information on the history of the island. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Well, you to scale the cliffs of logic, you were intended to read the guidebook because that's sort of like a I don't know how to tell thing. you this, Murph. I didn't do that. Nope, but... I didn't either. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think I think copy protection is one of the worst parts of these games. And it's understandable here. And thankfully it's like consistent. It's it's the same every time. Yeah. Um but like even then, like at the very know. least it's not a like look in your game manual and type in the code at the back sort of thing. Yes. It's, it's more yeah, involved. You, like, you have to read a guidebook, understand the culture, and decipher the language in order to answer these riddles. Um, oh that God. said, like, the little, like, clicking to walk up the clicks of logic is maybe the worst part of the game. Yeah. Uh, whoa, wait a I, minute. I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't like the Minotaur maze either. I, I don't like mazes either. So. No, but that's another thing of just, like, of the time you were meant to, like, draw out a map as you did it. And, you know, yeah. just not that I, I... I have my keyboard and my mouse, and that's all I should need for a game. Um, yeah. yeah f Phantom Hourglass can get away with it. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's different in other games because those action games... I don't know, sort of immerse you more in that and it feels more intentional. I think in these scenarios, it's clear that they're meant to prolong the game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, and I think that's where it's like, oh, okay, dude. Like, I'm just walking in rooms and then the rooms fuck me over. I don't, I'm not about this. Yeah, definitely. How do you feel about Jalo, the court clown? <laughs> um, Do you I like his him. little incidental calliope music? If you keep doing the voice, I'm not going to like it. <laughs> Splendiferous, even. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of Hanna Barbera voice actors too. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> it's sort of a meme that like Jalo is kind of aggravating because he has a tendency to just talk and talk, but he's supposed to be your like most consummate ally on the islands, other than like the unnamed pawn shop owner. It, it goes back to like the tone thing where it's like he he he's in serious scenes. Yes. And he just talks like that. And you're like, what the fuck? There's like a thing where he's talking like, I've never seen like the princess. I've never seen the princess look so dark and dour. And the entire time he's talking like that and his like incidental calliope music is playing in the background. Um, I'm just like, what the fuck? Yeah. 
I don't I don't hate him. I like I don't think he's super annoying. I could I could see spending hours on this game and then being annoyed by him. But yeah, like, it's fine. And well, in terms of vocal performances, he's not as bizarre as the genie. The genie is bizarre even in like visual design. Yes, or the fact he gets drunk on mint. Like I still don't yeah. get like what is is that a reference? Is that like a <laughs> is that lore? I don't, I, yeah, I don't I don't know the deep lore here. I I also get like. <sighs> I don't know. I I probably don't want to go there. I just get weird vibes from the genie. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Just uh, I don't know. I don't. I I didn't kill him, but like I saw the bad ending. I saw the quick ending on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Like it's also weird how his turn is. Like because when you get the bottle, he's like, oh. Thank goodness, I finally feel the evil taint of that master going away. I want a good master. It's like, it's like you tried to kill me weird. five times. Yeah. yeah, dude. Like, I think this twist, like, the, this betrayal is, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, I like his, I like his disguises, though. Those um, are good. And I like his, like, come over here thing. It's very obvious, like, every time. You don't need a guy to tell you don't go over there, but uh, it's funny. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty funny every time. I think my favorite is the, like, the gardener being like, come yes. over here, and I'll show you how I plant these flowers. <laughs> it's like, even- don't pay attention to the statue with an arrow following you. He's just there to scare you, and it's like, what? It's like, even even if that is true, why would I want to come see you plant flowers? Is this how you introduce yourself to people? <laughs> um, okay, the big question. How do you feel about the smash hit song, Girl in the Tower? Dude, I busted out laughing. I'm so about it. I think I think it makes the game that there's a love ballad at the end. Yes. Before and it's like, that, I don't... It's such a, a late 80s, like, like power ballad, you know? I'm... It, that it fills my heart with love and joy which is which is important because like the actual romance between alexander and Casima is not some would say developed so like by the end of it you're like okay this is weird but all right you, you kind of get it. it's one of those issues of it being like a sequel thing um if i remember correctly in king's quest 5 there's more of them like interacting together so it makes sense why they yeah. would seek them each other out after the fact. Um, but but even then, it you know by this game it feels like the love is is like I'm a prince, you're a princess. Yeah, it, it, it feels like not. It feels like they're saying it, not meaning it, until the power ballad. Yeah, when you put the power t- power ballad in, I feel it. It's like. You remember how the end of the J campaign in Resident Evil 6 ended with a song? Yes. It, I, yes, it ended with a real song. And like that was the that was the campaign with the most romantic chemistry. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, I'm feeling it. I think more games should end with like original songs. I think that needs to be a category at the game awards. I agree. One hundred percent. What is that it? Is that all we have to say I mean, about it's this? It's just game? like it's you know, it's one of those things kind of like classic resident evil and i know i keep like calling back to resident evil but genuinely that's like my most point of reference over the last two years um 
where it's like, you know, I didn't want to play those original Resident Evils because I always heard they were, like, clunky and complicated compared to, like, you know, modern games with quality of life elements and things. And it's like, no, it's just a style of game we haven't gotten a lot of as of late. And I think, like, this game would be very palatable to modern gamers looking for, like, a true adventure game point-and-click experience. I agree. And, like, the thing is, is also I think a lot of criticism for games like this and puzzles within these games largely comes from pre-internet times you know where solutions weren't readily available mm. where you were stuck and especially when people were kids and there was a lot there was like a time investment and like much it was much harder it's just like there, there were more obstacles to overcome it whereas now the obstacles are lesser and and you're not a kid anymore so the adventure game logic you know the thing about adventure game logic especially sierra i think lucas arts can get a little uh, weird in a bad way mm -hmm. i think they're often funnier um in writing but lucas arts sometimes the fucking puzzles make no sense and here it there's a logic to them the logic may not be something you're used to but it's there you know what I mean? It's yeah. like rotten egg being sulfur. It's like, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. You need sulfur for your spell. So you use the rotten egg. Like there, there's nothing wrong with that abstraction, you know? Yeah, I'm trying to think like what is the biggest leap in logic in this entire game. And I'm like, eh. You know, you can kind of miss out getting like river sticks water for uh, sneaking into the castle. But... Mm -hmm. As far as, like, why would I ever think to do that with that, I can't really think of much of anything. Um, and, you know, part of that is this is, like, my third time playing this. So, there you know, I just kind of remember what the puzzles are. Once you know to throw the rotten tomato at the stick in the mug, stick in the mud, that sticks with you for life, you know? Yeah. You'll remember it forever. Um, I, I, I recommend this game. Thumbs up. I like Sierra. Sierra's a good thing. And technically speaking, the first Daydreamcast episode with a Murph was a Sierra game. That is true. We did we did Leisure Suit Larry. If if we ever do another Sierra game, which one would you want? Hmm. Maybe one of those Quest for Glory ones. Because those are like point and click games, but they're also RPGs. Do, do you want to do a police quest so we could do our ACAB bit? Or no? Or are we going to save that? I hear Police Quest 4 is supposed to be good. But I think that's also, like, not a point-and-click thing. I think that's, like, a tactile, like, really? XCOM thing. I think so, unless I didn't I'm know. something I, else. I, I didn't know. I just hear the word quest. And I, I know in Police it. Quest 1, there's a um, a quick ending you can get for sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. It comes with the territory of the job, I suppose. Mm. Uh, um. All right. No, I think uh, I think that's it. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, not really. Uh, Brogan, where can where can listeners find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brogan Chatton. We have a Daydreamcast YouTube channel that I think we're bad at promoting, uh -huh. but I'm gonna try a little harder. I'm putting the Daydreamcast episodes on there for our listening pleasure. And uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, you can just see me fucking anywhere. I just pop up. He just pops up um, in mirrors. Murph, where can we find you? Uh, huh? You can find me on Twitter at Murph04. Um, 
You can also hear me on my other podcast, This Podcast is a Bad Idea. The most recent episode was me explaining the plots of all 13 Kingdom Hearts games. It has two versions, the uh, the quick and done 90-minute uh, one or the final mix, which is a little over two hours and contains some, like, conspiracy theory speculation on the future of the franchise. You didn't mention the Kingdom Hearts for the true endings in uh, Variety Minute. I guess I didn't. Anyway, Well, those aren't true endings. Those are secret endings. <laughs> okay, they're different. All right, my bad. I'm sorry. Yeah, come on. Get, get with the program. Um, okay. We also will be having, uh, like we mentioned, that spinoff show. Uh, it's going to be called Oops All Cutscenes, where we are joined by uh, Calvin of the Twin Geeks to talk about uh, some double feature video game movie adaptations. The first episode will be on 1995's Mortal Kombat and 2006's Silent Hill. That's so exciting. I wonder how that episode will go. I wonder as well. Uh, and are we plugging anything else? Did we just plug ourselves this entire time? I'm so I, proud of us. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's time we had like just an us episode, you know. I agree. 100%. And that's why we're downhill. If you I want us it. to plug you, uh, add us on the Twin Geeks <laughs> Discord. That's right. That's right. Uh, what's our next game, Murph? And our next game, we're going to space. We're rocketing off uh, to a doomed ship called the Ishimura. And we will be talking about the classic survival horror, Dead Space. You have not played this game before in any circumstance. I have not. Are you excited? I'm, I'm a little excited. I, I think, um, you know, I've got my horror chops about me now more than I would have, like, in 2009. So I'm, I'm interested for, for some tactful dismemberment. Sorry, tactile dismemberment. That's There you go. We man. also will have a guest, to... won't we, Brogan? Yeah. Uh, Aridin, who is a YouTuber uh yeah no uh i've known him for a bit uh we are buddies so uh yeah and he's also i think unironically he's the most gamer guest we've had like he he's played like he was like he's our age and he's played like shit like call of duties ah. like he was in that era so like he was perfectly the target audience for dead space mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. uh that's exciting. Right on, right on. Well, dear listener, if you think we have jumped the shark this episode or any other, let us know down in the comments. And uh, keep on, keep on loving yourself. Game. I want to play like a shark game. A shark game? Yeah. Like Jaws for the NES? Yes. Okay. Well, we can we can look at shark games and then have a variety minute. Would you settle for like a piranha game? No. No? What? Uh, okay. Any particular, like, <laughs> breed of shark? We're, we're fading out. We faded out. Is there a street shark game? <laughs> Actually, no, that's... I don't know. I don't think there is. There's Battletoads. Is Battletoads not enough for you? Is there a game where the protagonist is named Shark? There, there is a street shark game for the Genesis. I'll be dipped. That's what I'm talking about. I want to play that game. I should probably stop recording. 